This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is another off-season collab episode. I have a very special guest with me all the way from Red Rum True Crime Podcast. I have Grace Cordell with me. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Hello, hello, hello. A few of my listeners will be very happy about this collaboration. It's been a long time coming, a lot of pestering on my end. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad we could finally get it in the diary. I thought it was never going to happen. You coming on yet? No, no. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Soon, soon. Yeah, yeah. You coming on yet? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to come on. Just a bit busy. All right. <laughs> we did arrange this date about three months ago. Yeah. So for my listeners that don't know, tell us about Red Rum. So Red Rum is a podcast that focuses on the true victims of crime. So it is as victim focused as it can be. We've been doing it for, I'd say, two, two and a half years now, and we do an episode every single month. So we were just talking, actually, about how long it takes to do an episode, but I was just saying, I don't know how you create so much content. It feels like just impossible, but you do it, and you do it great, so that's the important thing. Cheers. Yeah, it's fucking hard work, I'll be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard, but also you're on YouTube now, smashing that. Yeah, yeah. So on YouTube, we're under humans, but I'm uploading, yes, I'm uploading (laughs) videos and Red Rum podcasts going up there as well. So if you prefer YouTube, you can listen there, watch there. Can I confirm Red Rum is called so after The Shining, right? Of course, yeah. And thank you for getting that reference. My mum thought it was um, because of the horse. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two-time Grand National winning horse. Sure, why not? <laughs> Double check that with her. Just say uh, when this goes out, by the way, Christmas will have come and gone. So hope everyone had a great Christmas. Yeah, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year is coming up. So this, if all goes to plan, the date right now is the 29th of December, 2022. Oh my God, I love today. So in a couple of days' time, it's New Year's Eve. So be safe. See you in the New Year well. And I hope you had a great Christmas. It's really weird recording this on 21st of December. But what Grace is going to do, as Bobby did last week, is basically get me out of writing over the holidays and tell me one of her stories. And I'm just going to pass you over and just let you enjoy the dulcet tones of Grace Cardell. 
Thank you so much. So we are going to go back to 1985. Saturday the 23rd of November was a mild, clear day in Athens in Greece. And by nightfall, it was considered a fairly pleasant evening. 92 passengers made their way through the airport and through four separate security checks before boarding a Boeing 737-200 airliner headed for Cairo in Egypt. They were welcomed onto the plane one by one by the six crew members, including 39-year-old Captain Hani Galal. Once everyone was on board, the crew took their positions and made sure all passengers were seated and their seatbelts were on, ready for the planned takeoff at 9pm. This was 1985, as I said at the beginning, so the back area of the plane was the designated smoking area. The flight attendants made their way through the plane and they'd do all the usual things you'd do in 1985, so they were offering out newspapers to anyone who would like one. The plane then quickly reached its cruising altitude of 33,000 feet, and this was only about 10 minutes into the flight. As the plane reached that height, three of the seemingly normal passengers took their seatbelts off pulled up their masks and ambushed the flight attendants. Omar Mohammed Ali Rezik, Nar al-Dimbo and Salem Chakori showed the attendants and the terrified passengers that they had guns and grenades on them. Once Omar Mohammed was up, he went to the front of the plane and he forced himself into the cockpit. The other two hijackers, Nar and Salem, shouted don't move a number of times and then told the seated passengers to hand over their passports immediately. They were all obviously fearing what might happen and so each passenger did hand over their passports one at a time as one of the two hijackers approached them. Some people were frisked and Nar focused on the front half of the plane while Salem focused on the back half. Salem then told the passengers he was going to sort them by nationality. So he placed two Israelis, Tamar Artsy and Nitsan Mendelssohn, at the very front of the plane, along with three Americans, Patrick Scott Baker, Scarlett Robenkamp and Jackie Nink Flug. He then ordered them all to sit down. Then he signalled for the next 11 people, who he'd sorted by them being Palestinian, to sit at the back of the plane. They said that they could all sit at the back because they weren't likely to be any threat and most of those 11 were women and children. The plane had set off at 9pm and it was now coming up to 10pm. The two hijackers in the main part of the plane were still sorting through people. They were frisking them if they felt like it. Then one of the hijackers, Salem, told an Egyptian passenger to hand over his passport. The man, who was called Mustafa Medhat Kamal, was actually a sky marshal, so that's essentially an in-flight security guard. And so when he went to get his passport, he actually ended up pulling his gun out. And so in this sort of crazy turn of events, he immediately shot and killed Salem, that hijacker. But on hearing that shot being fired, the hijacker in the cockpit, Omar Mohammed, emerged through the door and just opened fire in the plane. At the same time, the other hijacker, Nar, who was at the back of the plane, also opened fire. 19 shots were fired, including a number from the Sky Marshal, Mustafa's gun. Unfortunately, there were a number of serious injuries at this point of both passengers and flight attendants. Mustafa was shot in the back by Nar, who was at the back of the plane, and he collapsed down and sort of slumped forwards onto the floor. At this point, the two remaining hijackers shouted for the passengers to be quiet and not to move. And they stated that they didn't want to hurt anyone else, which I don't know that I quite believe, given where we get to. 
Now, obviously, just moments before this, there had been a number of guns shooting bullets in a plane, and there was serious concern about what might actually happen to the plane itself. Thankfully, because Mustafa's gun was purpose-built, he was an in-flight security guard, so his gun was loaded with these 9 millimeter hollow-point bullets. So it meant that they absolutely would kill, if necessary, at close range, but the bullets wouldn't puncture the main shell of the aeroplane. Obviously, the hijackers' guns weren't meant for that. And so whilst firing their guns, two shots actually pierced the side of the plane. And this led to a loss of compression, which was extremely dangerous, as you can imagine. Captain Galau was then forced to lower the aeroplane to below 10,000 feet due to lack of oxygen. At this point, oxygen masks fell down and passengers scrambled to place them over their faces. The hijacker Omar Mohammed, who had initially been in the cockpit, had to take charge now that the previous lead, Salem, was dead. So he told Captain Galau to fly to Libya. But the issue with flying a plane so low is that it takes an enormous amount of fuel to travel, much more than it would if the plane was higher. And Captain Galau had to tell Omar Mohammed that they just wouldn't make it there if they tried to get there. Captain Galau then tried to convince the hijackers to land at a US base in Sicily, but they obviously rejected that idea, and they eventually settled on landing in Malta. When they made contact with Malta to get permission to land, they were initially refused entry, but Captain Galau told the control tower that if they weren't allowed to land, they would be forced to ditch the aeroplane at sea. So after that, they were granted permission and they began to make their descent onto the runway below. They touched down and news of the hijacking had already travelled fast. The Prime Minister of Malta had already travelled to the control room and had begun negotiations. He also called in the Maltese armed forces to surround the plane. And weirdly, there was this sort of level of optimism by the Maltese authorities at this point, because in 1973, so 12 years before this, an aeroplane was travelling from Amsterdam to Tokyo and had 264 people on board. It was taken over by three hijackers and that situation was actually successfully resolved with no casualties or fatalities. So they thought it was within their control and they could solve this without any fatalities. So the Prime Minister of Malta, along with the help of an interpreter, was in the control tower awaiting further news when he got a demand from one of the hijackers. They said they wanted fuel and they wanted the Maltese armed forces to leave. But the Prime Minister refused, saying he'd only do that once everyone on board was released. And not that the hijackers knew this, but Captain Galal had actually taken some, and this is a quote, unspecified technical steps to ensure that the plane just wasn't going to be able to fly again. But obviously the hijackers didn't know that at that point. The hijackers then said they needed an ambulance and a doctor because they wanted the other hijacker who had been shot to be helped. A Maltese doctor, who was called Victor, agreed to go into this potentially fatal situation and he immediately went on board. Thankfully, after this, Captain Galau convinced the hijackers to let the two injured flight attendants and 11 passengers off of the plane. And right now, the Prime Minister and everyone else in the negotiations team and the armed forces, they're really hoping that this hijacking might be solved with no fatalities, and they actually think that's a possibility. Just then, the hijackers dump a body off of the plane and onto the runway below, and that is the body of an Israeli woman who had been shot earlier when the shootout happened. 
The hijackers move on. They're not bothered about this woman and they make another demand for fuel. This is the third time they've asked and the control tower informs them that their demands won't be considered until they release all the people on board. So they're sort of, the negotiations are going forward, but they're just sort of saying the same thing. The Prime Minister then decided to bring Egypt's special forces counter-terrorism team on board, although this was a bit of a risk and he was concerned that they would take it upon themselves to storm the plane. He told them that they must wait for his instruction. Egypt's special forces unit was flown in to stand by the American officers and it was agreed that on the morning of the 25th of November they would disguise themselves as food caterers and once they were on board they'd jam the aeroplane doors open and then they would attack. The hijacker Omar Mohammed called a number of Filipino and then Egyptian women forward and began actually allowing them off the plane. And then he turned round and he called an Israeli woman, Tamar Artsy, forward. Tamar got to the passenger steps, ready to descend down to safety, when she felt a sharp shooting pain in the back of her head. Omar Mohammed had raised his gun and shot her. She fell to the floor and Omar Mohammed threw her down the stairs and onto the runway below. The hijackers then informed the control tower that they'd be killing one passenger in the next 15 minutes and every 15 minutes after that, another passenger would be killed. 15 minutes later, with no sign of the fuel they wanted, Omar Mohammed told another Israeli passenger called Nitzan Mendelssohn to come forward. Now she was friends with Tamar and she knew what was about to happen. The hijacker Omar Mohammed shot her in the head and then threw her down the stairs and on top of Tamar. And at this point, Omar Mohammed noticed that Tamar actually moved slightly when that happened. So he ran down the stairs and shot her again. Over the next hour, he shot three more people, all American. The first was a man called Patrick Scott Baker. He was tall at six foot five and the hijacker had to actually raise his gun upwards to shoot him. The next American to be shot was Scarlett Mary Robenkamp and finally Jackie Ninkflug. During this time, both hijackers were making jokes and laughing at the people on board who were asking for mercy. The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Over the following few hours, they dumped the bodies of the people they've shot off the plane. And during this time, the doctor on board the aeroplane had actually examined that third hijacker and had declared him dead. There was nothing that he could do for that hijacker. At around 3am, the landing lights were switched off and Maltese security officers began to approach the plane. The hijackers saw this and did fire a warning shot, but because there's obviously only two of them now, they can't afford to take their focus off of all of the passengers still on board. That warning shot didn't stop the officers and they began collecting the bodies of people who had been shot um, and dumped onto the runway and sort of moving them away from that area. Although, by some way of a miracle, not everyone who was shot had died. 
the Egyptian Sky Marshal, who had shot one of the terrorists dead at the beginning of the hijacking and had been shot in the back and slumped forward onto the floor, he was actually alive and just playing dead. Because the hijacker who had shot him had been using a defective gun, the wound was superficial. And there were other survivors. So that first Israeli woman to be shot after the every 15 minutes threat, Tamar, she actually survived, as did two of the Americans, Patrick and Jackie. Unfortunately, the third American woman who was shot, Scarlett, did die. And although Nitzan, the third Israeli woman shot, did survive the initial bullet, she did unfortunately die a week later in hospital. At about 8.15pm, around 24 hours after passengers had boarded the plane, Captain Galau noticed a red light that was coming on and indicated that the cargo door had been opened. And he knew what this meant. He knew that a raid was about to begin. He tried to distract the hijacker's attention and then a huge explosion went off and blew a hole in the hold of the aeroplane. The explosives were much more than was what was actually needed and had been done against the Prime Minister's orders. He'd been expecting the Special Forces unit to storm the plane the following morning as planned. Because of the sheer amount of explosives used, it fueled a fire which engulfed the entire top section of the plane. This created fumes that actually intoxicated 54 people. The Special Forces unit then mounted each wing and opened fire inside of the aeroplane. 92 bullets were fired and a number of people who tried to escape the plane when the explosion happened were shot dead by the Special Forces unit. The innocent co-pilot, who managed to partially escape the cockpit, was shot dead by the Special Forces unit. When the hijackers realised what was happening, one of them shot at Captain Galau, but fortunately the bullet only grazed his head. They also let off a number of grenades, which obviously destroyed large sections of the plane and did kill a number of people on board. On one moment when the plane had been opened, the new lead hijacker, Omar Mohammed, had thrown a hand grenade towards the bottom of the steps. It exploded and seriously injured four soldiers. One of them actually had to have both of his legs amputated, but thankfully no one died in that particular bit. Hijacker Omar Mohammed then took his mask off and pretended that he was a passenger. And in the confusion, he was actually taken to the nearby St. Luke's Hospital. It quickly became clear that the hijacker Omar Mohammed had avoided being killed or captured, and also that it was likely that he was at the hospital. When the hospital bus arrived, four Special Forces soldiers jumped out in front of it. They were holding grenades and threatened to blow up the intensive care unit if they didn't get Omar Mohammed. Thankfully, a police officer who knew Arabic managed to calm the soldiers down when he explained that Omar Mohammed wasn't on this hospital bus and must have been on an earlier one. And that was true. Omar Mohammed was already inside of the hospital being operated on. The Special Forces soldiers got word from some of the other passengers who were in the hospital that they had recognised Omar Mohammed and he was in one of the hospital rooms. They arrested him and took him into custody. Meanwhile, back at the aeroplane wreckage, an investigation had begun and firefighters began to remove the bodies of the dead and they placed them in the hangar at the airport so that relatives could come by in their own time when they learned of the tragedy and identify the deceased. One woman who went in first got to the end of the hangar and let out a blood-curdling scream. She started shouting and pulling at her hair. She'd just come face to face with her dead son and she couldn't process it. 
the identification process continued and forensic teams moved in to compile their report. Hijacker Omar Mohammed faced trial in Malta and the six-month investigation that followed was thorough, but at the time, Malta had no anti-terrorism legislation, so he had to be tried on other charges that weren't that. The terrorist was then sentenced to just 25 years, but he was released in eight. Um, It's probably useful just for a little bit of context to talk about the militant group that Omar Mohammed and the other two hijackers were acting on behalf of. The Abu Nadal organisation was named after its founder and wasn't connected with religious or spiritual matters. It was an anti-Western group, but not really associated with any particular ideology. The group carried out hijackings, uh, assassinations and abductions of diplomats and attacks on synagogues. They carried out a total of 90 attacks between 1974 and 1992. So just a few weeks after this hijacking, the group did claim responsibility for the Rome and Vienna airport attacks where 19 people had died and 400 people were injured. So obviously they're a very dangerous group and they had been designated as a terrorist group by the US. So the US wanted to deport Omar Mohammed and arrest him on their turf. But the issue was, is that Malta had really strict laws about trying a person twice on charges connected to the same series of events. So they wouldn't actually cooperate with the US in deporting Omar Mohammed. But eventually, Omar Mohammed was forced to leave Malta. And uh, initially, he went to Ghana, where he was immediately arrested. And then when he was released from prison in Ghana, he boarded a flight to Nigeria. Nigerian authorities wouldn't let him enter the country. And instead, handed him over to the FBI. The FBI then brought him back to the US where he faced a single charge of air piracy and he was sentenced to life in an Illinois prison with no parole. A big question that surrounded the hijacking was how the terrorists were able to get their weapons onto the plane. We know that they were subjected to four separate security checks before boarding the plane, but private security experts had previously assessed that even though Athens Airport had all the necessary equipment, government security personnel were not properly motivated, lacked sufficient training and weren't able to properly perform because of poor procedures. This might be why we only know of one Sky Marshal on board that day, when at the time, protocol called for four Sky Marshals to be on board. And it was later discovered that a number of international aviation organisations had been going on and on at the Greek government to enhance security at the airport. Altogether, 58 out of 95 passengers and crew were killed, along with two of the three hijackers. Medical examiners concluded that eight passengers were shot dead by the Egyptian special forces. The people killed on board the plane were of all ages, One was a 10-year-old boy and two were women that were pregnant. Up until 9-11, Egypt Air Flight 648 was the most fatal hijacking of an aircraft. And of course, there were a few survivors in this story, but ironically, because of the hijackers' defective guns and that they made their own bullets, many of which had a low charge of powder, you were statistically more likely to survive being shot and then thrown off the plane than being alive on the plane when the raid took place. That is unbelievable, but that is the true story of this flight, Egypt Air Flight 648. Jesus. That's mad, isn't it? That is mad. 
I was going to question what the motive was, but you sort of covered it at the end there. I didn't realize there was a, such a thing as, is that what it's called? Air piracy? Yeah, I didn't know that either. But yeah. And I think at that point they were just trying, they were like, what can we get this person on where they, they will spend the rest of their life in jail? I take it that's because this happened, what, on this US airbase, right? Yeah, I assume so. Yeah, must yeah. be. And also they had they were aware of that organization and, and had declared them a terrorist organization. So they just wanted to have them on there as in on US turf. Right. Okay. So yeah. So they found out they've claimed responsibility for it and they've thought, right, extradite this guy and we'll get him on air piracy for life. Yeah. But if if they hadn't done that, I mean, perhaps another country would have. But if it was just up to Malta at that time, he literally was out within eight years. That's all he would have got for, you know, killing that many people. It's quite unbelievable, actually. So they wanted fuel for this plane that had bullet holes in it and basically couldn't fly. Mm-hmm. But before that, they wanted to. They wanted the captain to go and land in Libya. Yeah, they never specified why that was, but I imagine it was just so that they could then get on from there, escape okay. from there. Yeah. But to be honest, I, their plan doesn't sound hugely thought out, and it's never been... Like there's never been a huge amount of detail given to that. I assume Omar Mohammed just hasn't spoken about it, and obviously the other two guys are dead. So is Omar still alive, as far as we know? Do you know? What? I don't actually know. What was that? Eighty-five. I just saw a picture of him today because I, I wrote this case quite a while ago, and I was just um, re-looking at some of the source material. And he looked quite young in 1985. He looked maybe I don't know, like 30. Yeah. So, so been in his late 60s now. Yeah. Potentially. That was a cool story, though. Appreciate oh, you coming on and saving me having to write something, <laughs> something for the change. Oh my god, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, where can everybody find you? Where's the where do you want me to point people to? Have you got a website or anything? Mm, that would be very professional of me. So no, I do not. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, I will. Um, I'll send you my youtube and my podcast link and then maybe you can pop them in your show notes yeah of course so red rum a true crime podcast and humans in capitals on youtube but you still put the audio for red rum on youtube yeah so if you if you're a youtube user probably humans is a useful place to go on youtube however there are more episodes on red rum so it depends what you're into so what's the difference briefly remind me between... yeah it's a good question it's a bit confusing i'll be honest is it so... just the name well red rum started as the podcast and that is the podcast and humans started as the youtube channel that was not red rum it was a slightly separate thing so it's stories about humans so this the story that i told you today is one of the first stories that are covered on humans they're not straight up and up murders they're slightly different i also covered i don't know if you know the story of the canoe man john darwin you know that story no it's about a guy who faked his own death it's really interesting oh okay So I cover things like that on humans. Um, But then over the last two months, I've also started uploading Red Rum audio on there. So you can access humans and Red Rum. But the humans channel is both humans and Red Rum and Red Rum is just the podcast. Confusing. So confusing. I'm going to have a think about that and change everything. (laughs) But yeah, I'll put some links in the show notes so that people can find you and watch or listen. But for now... So as far as my schedule goes, dear listener, next week will be January the 5th 
and fingers crossed it should be the start of season eight so let's end it as we always do we always end on the same way here we say until next time cheerio 